Part two, chapters thirty seven and thirty eight of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. Chapter thirty seven An Old Virginia Farmer in eighteen sixty four. In small squads, traveling by unfrequented roads, the black horse made their way into Farquhar without being discovered. Scattering through the country among families and friends, each man was cautioned to be ready at any moment, day or night, to obey any summons from their officers. All horses were kept in the depths of the woods, as stables were considered too dangerous in those times. I was billeted for Mr. Martin's, the home of the celebrated Martins of the Black Horse. This snug little home, sitting back from the main road, some six miles north of Warrington, furnished three soldiers whose skill and gallantry made their name a household word among the cavalry corps. Robert, the eldest, was the orderly sergeant of the Black Horse, and he was to the enemy's scouts a rankling thorn. No man ever lived better fitted to back a friend or face a foe. He was the beau ideal of a cavalryman, tall, athletic, muscular, with pluck written in every line of his strongly marked face. He had certainly captured more of the enemy's cavalry than any other man in the army. He had just received a superb rifle sent by an English nobleman to be presented to the bravest man in Lee's army. Of course it was impossible among so many of the bravest soldiers on earth to choose one preeminently daring. Lieutenant Minor of the C.S. Navy, who was charged with the mission, forwarded the weapon to Colonel Randolph with instructions. After a good deal of inquiry, the Colonel presented the English heavy bore to Sergeant Martin as the man who had committed the most daring deeds. This decision caused no heart-burnings in the Black Horse, as Bob Martin was acknowledged leader in all enterprises which savored of fearful risk or dangerous undertaking. Bob Martin ought to have lived in the days of the Crusades. He would have made an ideal Spartacus, or a Jack Cade, for he was a born gladiator, six foot one inch in height, weighing about 180 pounds, with not an ounce of superfluous flesh. It was no wonder he was the acknowledged leader among the daring men of the Black Horse. In personal strength he was a phenomenon, and he was as quick and active as a panther. He had a good honest countenance, his eyes were gray, and his firm mouth and chin showed the character of the man. In action he had the sternest face I ever saw, and his eyes had within them a baleful glitter that was terrifying. As a partisan he was at his best. In the autumn of 1862, when riding along an obscure road in Farquhar County, he encountered six of the enemy, and in the fight that ensued he wounded two and captured two and came out unscathed. His deeds would fill pages. On one occasion, in 1863, he visited his home and found there two of his comrades of the Black Horse. Despite his better judgment, Sergeant Martin remained with them in the house all night. That evening a Negro servant of the Martin household slipped over to Casanova, about a mile distant, and informed the Federal General Torbett of the prize with an easy grasp. Just after midnight the house was surrounded by a battalion of Yankee cavalry, and the officer going to the door summoned all the inmates to appear. Two of the Rebs gave themselves up, but Bob Martin, with a pistol in each hand, sprang through a window right in the midst of his enemies, and there was some lively shooting, but he got away unharmed. He was not only fearless, but his nerve never failed, and in moments of deadliest peril he kept his wits about him, 
his mind and body moved in unison with the quickness of the lightning's flash and it was this intuitive action that saved him time and time again a man madly blindly brave placed in position of deadly menace and peril where martin escaped would have met death many times it was not bob's luck but his doing the right thing at the right time that saved him he was the only trooper in the black horse who when in close quarters preferred the sabre to the pistol and come to think of it i never met or heard of any cavalryman except the german colonel von bork stuart's personal friend who did in the charge at brady station in june eighteen sixty four sergeant martin rode a couple of lengths in advance and literally hewed his way with his sabre through the opposing force it was for a time a surging intermingled mass of men who feared to use their pistols unless the muzzles were jammed against the enemy's body and it was in that mob that bob martin so distinguished himself that his deeds were talked of around every campfire in the cavalry with all there was not a touch of desperado about bob martin outside of battle he was a reserved quiet man unobtrusive and reticent he was obligingly and wholly generous and he inherited from his father his honesty and pride bob martin by all laws should have been the captain of the black horse and every trooper had he been privileged would have voted him that honor that such a born soldier should have gone through the war in the ranks is but one of the numberless cases of the incompetency of the confederate government dick martin the second brother was second to none in the black horse for courage and nerve it was he who had the proud distinction of being chosen by jackson at harper's ferry to carry to lee the tidings of its surrender it was he whom lee chose to bear his dispatches to jackson urging him to effect a junction at sharpsburg dick performed his mission well but he killed his thoroughbred horse in doing so george or as he was called josh was the youngest and a born soldier he was a blooded gamecock with the gaffles on and though of sweet disposition and gentle manners in action he was as dangerous as a sans culette in an emeute holding a barricade against the municipal guard he killed captain meigs in a duel to the death in the valley but more of that later the father old mr john martin was taking him all in all one of the noblest types of manhood i ever met i never expect to look upon his like again a nature so true so noble so honest that he impressed all who met him as being a man of strong individuality by those who knew him intimately he was admired for his grandeur of character and loved for his big generous heart he was my ideal of a patriot and when with him i always thought of cincinnatus the noblest roman of them all mr martin loved his state and the cause she had espoused with all the might of his strong nature and with a singleness of purpose which is rarely met with he had no thought which was not connected with the welfare of his state he was a large landed proprietor the possessor of two spacious farms lying near warrington junction at the outbreak of the war he was a man of means and owed no man a dollar when the tide of conflict surged to his doors he threw them wide open and gave everything he had to the soldiers and held absolutely nothing back his house was the rendezvous for all the black horsemen in the vicinity any straying scout applying for shelter was naturally directed to the martins their house was always full thousands and thousands of soldiers were fed there during the four years of warfare nor was there ever a straggling northern soldier turned from his door he had a stout heart that old white-haired gentleman 
standing calmly by and watching the destruction of his crops, the capturing of his stock, the dismantling or burning of his fences, stables, and barns, and the general pillaging of his states by his foes, without a murmur. He seemed endowed with a sublime philosophy. He commenced life as a poor man, and had slowly and patiently, in a half-century of incessant toil, made himself and family comfortable, and now with the calmness of a stoic he stood by and saw the labors of a long life destroyed. He made no threat, no plaint, nor indulged in any repinings. He was the type of many Virginia planters and farmers too old to shoulder a musket. He was proud of his three sons, and they revered the old man. Nothing pleased Mr. Martin so much as to get his house filled with the cracks of the black horse and listen to their tales of daring do. End of chapter 37 Chapter 38 How Captain John N. Miggs Was Killed The youngest son of our host took no part in the festivities of Christmas time, but worn and pale moved about the room with slow, uncertain steps. He had had a duel a la mart a short time before, and escaped with his life by a miracle, while his antagonist fell by his hand. General Sheridan sent the following telegram to Grant, dated October 7, 1864. Lieutenant John R. Miggs, my engineer officer, was murdered beyond Harrisonburg, near Dayton. For this atrocious act all houses within the area of five miles were burned. Now I deem it justice not only to the gallant scout who shot him, but also to remove the stain of cowardly murder from the reputation of the black horse, to narrate here the true statement of the skirmish in which Captain Miggs, by the fortunes of war, lost his life. I obtained these facts from the lips of those concerned in the affair within a month after it occurred. The account is true, for they were all gentlemen in the highest sense of the term, whose veracity has never yet been questioned. In the month of October, 64, Wick Haney's cavalry brigade lay encamped in the valley. Both of the opposing armies lay on their arms watching each other. Sheridan's army was near Harrisonburg. His topographical engineers were engaged in surveying and exploring the country and preparing a map of the valley for the use of Sheridan, who, even then, was perfecting his plan for an onward movement toward Staunton. It being exceedingly desirable that the movements and intentions of the enemy should be unmasked, General Wickham determined to send a squad of his best scouts within the enemy's lines to collect all the information possible. Campbell and Martin of the Black Horse, and Frank Schaefer, a valley man, were detailed for the dangerous undertaking. The three, upon receipt of their orders, immediately set about preparing for their perilous exploit. The horses were groomed, fed and examined, and newly shod this being most carefully done, for on the heels of the horse hangs the life of the scout. The three left camp on the 7th of October, and were soon outside the vedettes of our own army. Then they proceeded with more caution, having learned the exact location of the enemy picket's post from the citizens. They struck for the woods, and following the bypaths, easily evaded the Yankee outpost, and soon were safely within their lines and having reached the turnpike, they rode slowly along, keeping every sense on the alert, for they were now close by the camps of their foes. A light drizzling rain had begun to fall, and each had thrown over his shoulders, for protection against the weather, and not for any purpose of disguise, a common gum blanket or oilcloth, which concealed their gray uniforms. 
Perceiving a house close by the road some distance off, they rode on in its direction, intending to stop and inquire for information. As they neared the dwelling, they observed three men behind them. One in the lead was probably an officer. All were galloping their horses, as if for the purpose of overtaking them. Those three men were Captain Miggs, of the Topographical Corps, and his two orderlies, probably returning from a survey. Campbell, who was leader, turned to his comrades and observed, Boys, here come three Yankees. Ride along quietly, and as they get abreast, each of you will pick his man and take him prisoner. Now be certain that no two choose the same fellow. They quietly drew their Colt's revolvers and held them concealed beneath the oilcloths. Captain Miggs and his orderlies were but a few yards behind, and would in a moment be alongside. They apparently were ignorant of the character of the scouts, and thought them merely a squad of their own cavalrymen. They were woefully deceived, for as they were opposite, the three southerners, suddenly wheeling their horses, confronted them, and each selecting his man, brought his pistol to bear full on him, and in tones of deadly menace ordered them to surrender. The two orderlies threw up their hands at once, and handed their arms to their captors, Campbell and Schaefer. Captain Miggs was of sterner stuff, his presence of mind perfect. He pretended to comply, drew his pistol, and cocked it, his long cape concealing the maneuver. His antagonist, thinking he was unbuckling his belt, withheld his fire, but kept his colts leveled at his bosom. "'I never dreamt for a moment,' said Martin, when telling the tale, that he intended firing, for the captain cried out in a loud voice, "'Don't shoot! I surrender!' Captain Miggs, having drawn and cocked his weapon quickly but quietly, brought the muzzle toward Martin. Upon the second order to surrender, Miggs pressed the trigger and fired. The ball struck Martin fairly in the body, and he swayed and reeled in his saddle, but only for a moment. With clenched teeth and eyes blazing with rage, the grim, black horseman's hand grasped his pistol with a furious grip, and his fingers touched the fatal piece of steel. The hammer fell, and the report rang out sharp and clear, and Captain John Miggs fell headlong to the ground with a bullet through his heart. The deed was done. With a fierce joy the stricken man saw the deadly bullet do its work, and then a mist came over his eyes. His nerveless hand dropped his trusty weapon, and in low, faint tones he told Campbell he was shot. His comrade sprang to his side, and as he did so his prisoner drove his spurs into his horse's flank and bounded off. Campbell fired and missed, but Schaefer shattered his arm as he passed him, and held on to his own prisoner. Taking Martin from his horse, Campbell made a hasty examination of the wound, and to his unprofessional eye it seemed mortal. The ball entering a few inches below the left breast had come out near the vertebrae. Settling the wounded scout in the saddle and passing his arm around the swaying form, Campbell and his party moved off as rapidly as they could, carrying with them the slain officer's horse and the prisoner that Schaefer had captured. They did not stop to examine the body of their dead enemy. Had they done so, a valuable prize in the shape of documents, official papers, and surveys would have rewarded them. Their haste was pressing. The escaped prisoner would in a few minutes give the alarm, and the whole county would soon be swarming with bluecoats, rabid with the desire for vengeance. If caught, they feared a short shift, an equally short rope would be accorded them. On they hurried, and in a few hours reached the thickly wooded region, where, feeling safe, they halted at the first house, and carrying in their wounded comrade, placed him in bed and sent for a country doctor. The physician came, a newly-fledged M.D., 
who, after examining the wound, with a look of intense wisdom, finally shook his head and pronounced it absolutely fatal. Campbell, distrusting his knowledge, hurried him off and sent for another, an old gentleman whose experience in gunshot wounds was more extensive. His examination was short and entirely satisfactory. The bullet, he said, has touched no vital part, but the variation of only one-eighth of an inch and the vertebrae would have been shattered. This was one of the seemingly miraculous cases which happen at rare intervals. Not one man in a hundred, shot with the muzzle of the pistol close to his body, would survive. But Fortis Fortuna Favet and the gallant scout in a few weeks recovered sufficiently to be taken home. Such was the manner in which Captain Miggs was killed. If anyone could see anything cowardly or treacherous in his death, he must possess fine sensibilities. It was as fair and as tough a fight as ever occurred. It was Greek met Greek. Both antagonists were shot, and yet because one recovered and the other did not, the charge was murder. Then ensued a piteous scene in that fatal five-mile square. When engaged in their peaceful avocations at home, a battalion of Federals rode up and informed the sires and matrons that they had orders to burn their homes, and would give them an hour to vacate the premises. There were passionate pleadings, and the proudest of Virginia ladies bowed themselves in supplication, not only for their own sake, but for their poor, helpless children. All in vain. The fiat had gone forth. The firing parties had no option in the matter. Their duty as soldiers was but to obey. At last, when the forks of flame and volumes of smoke were seen bursting from the windows and doors, the saddened inmates would stagger off, bearing in their arms those little ones who through God's mercy were too young to feel the terrors of their situation. Then, blinded with tears, their hearts bursting with grief, their brains maddened by despair, the poor family would wander off to some neighbor's house, there to watch and pray for help, for it was all that was left them to do. Many of Sheridan's troopers wept like children when they obeyed that order, and gave the unfortunates their blankets, and one, dismounting, presented a lady with his horse, and went his way on foot. End of chapter 38